to the tables which we have assembled, it is our estimate that 4% of the American people own 85% of the wealth of America, and that over 70% of the people of America don't own enough to pay the debts that they owe. How many men ever went to a barbecue and would let one man take off the table what's intended for nine-tenths of the people to eat? The only way you'll ever be able to feed the balance of the people is to make that man come back and bring back some of that grub he ain't got no business Why we are slumbered America, land of brave and true, with castles and clothing and food for all, all belong to you. Every man a king, every man a king, for you can be a millionaire. But there's nothing belonging to others. There's enough for all people. Hello, friends and enemies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Lindsay. I'm Jonah. <laughs> uh, welcome to Pandastoria. Bet you didn't see that coming. I'm leading this off. Haha. <laughs> um, yeah, we're back. Season two. We're running. It's, I mean, we uh, already did this last episode, so we might as well just skip all the... But still. We're back. But Yay. still. Season two. It's episode two. I'm excited. Huey Long of Louisiana, who I'm sure none of you know of, or maybe a few. If you have any vague knowledge on American history, or like, actually, it's not even vague. If you have any, like, really niche <laughs> knowledge on American history, then you might know who he is. Um, he was definitely overshadowed with other figures, especially well, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Given his time period, yeah. yeah. And also, I think, uh, the fact that he really died before he accomplished much. Exactly. Spoiler alert, he's dead. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, um, are but, most of the people we talk about, though? Yeah. Basically, he was a politician in the Deep South, and he was just very... He was an interesting character. He was very not the typical Southern Democrat he, that you would have around that time. Or even now, to some extent. He uh, definitely was known as the most colorful senator pretty much ever. <laughs> even still, it's he's remembered as being one of the more colorful characters. But yeah, so he was from Louisiana, which is a state in the Deep South. So the Deep Southern states are like Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana. Florida. Florida. The Upper South, or the border states like Arkansas, etc., um, so he was from Louisiana. Uh, the state's capital is Baton Rouge. It was then. It still is. Louisiana is a really diverse state, actually. Uh, it's a really interesting state compared to its neighboring states a little bit because I think it gets classed as being the same. But in reality, it has a very like ethnically diverse um, group of people. So, I mean, as of right now, the biggest like language demographic is obviously English. But there's actually quite a large percent of French speakers from the Creole and Cajun backgrounds. But uh, essentially, Louisiana is a very strong mix of French, Haitian, Spanish, Native American, and African cultures. And a lot of this stems from the fact that Louisiana was a colony both by the French and the Spanish before it became an American state. So, and there was a large flux of uh, Haitian immigration. So it's a very like, interesting melting pot of, uh, of different cultures, which is kind of cool because it's created its own culture to some extent. It's a famous city, for, or New Orleans especially is famous for that reason. But uh, yeah, it borders uh, Texas to the west, Arkansas to the north, and Mississippi to the east. So it's on the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, everyone will remember the BP oil spill off the Gulf, which was actually off the Gulf of 
Well, it was in it was close to Louisiana. It was in I think it was Louisiana. Yeah, it was close enough to be it absolutely. Was, I think Louisiana was the most devastated yeah, area because too. the whole delta was just Yeah. But uh yeah, so like I said it was a French and Spanish colony uh before it was an American state and so it became an American state in 1803 when it was purchased. So, the famous Louisiana purchase. And uh, like all southern states, Louisiana has a pretty long history of slavery, which is not so good. The first slaves were actually brought to Louisiana in 1708. So Louisiana's slave history is actually way different than some of the other states just because of the French and Spanish colonies. Uh, The French and Spanish both brought slaves before Americans did. So, well, I mean, foreigners are who brought slaves to the United States, but uh, the first slaves were brought to Louisiana in 1708. And in 1719, the slave trade began to really take off. It took a few years. It took about a decade before people started to really realize, I guess, the utility, unfortunately. Uh, But by by 1721, half of the uh, 1,256 inhabitants of New Orleans were slaves. So just that city alone, like 50% of them were slaves. Um, In 1724, a black code was enacted to legislate interactions between whites and blacks. It basically outlined the legal punishment for slaves. But interestingly... Is a French law at this time. So the interesting thing about this law that I learned is that the main point was actually to regulate slave owners. It wasn't even about regulating, like, blacks. It was actually about regulating slave owners. But it really didn't do anything because it was difficult to enforce. So kind of a weird law in that way and ultimately a non-effectual one for white people because not enforced. (laughs) But when the U.S. bought Louisiana, the slave trade did remain, even though technically it was actually illegal when the U.S. bought Louisiana, so it's a little bit weird. I'm not, I need to clarify this. It's something I, I just couldn't quite figure out, but my understanding is that the slave trade was illegal once the U.S. bought Louisiana, not because of the slaves, but because they were foreign slaves. Yeah, so yeah. importing slaves was illegal. But the trade of slaves yeah. with that already within oh, the states were legal. Yeah, so they still kept importing slaves because it was it's a port, so it was easiest. New Orleans became one of the biggest slave markets as a result. And by 18, so by 1840, it was uh, the largest slave market. And it made it one of the wealthiest cities and also the third largest city in the nation at that point as a result. Uh, the ban on the African slave trade and importation of slaves increased the demand on domestic slave trade. So the Gulf became, or New Orleans became a hotbed for that. Uh, during the decades following the American Revolution, more than a million slaves underwent forced migration from the Upper South to the Deep South. So... That was a pretty significant uh, population move. In 1812, Louisiana became the 18th state of the United States. So according to the 1860 census, nearly 47% of the state's total population was enslaved. So it was 331,726 out of 708,002 people in the entire state. So 47%. The strong economic interest of elite whites in maintaining the slave society contributed to Louisiana's decision to secede from the Union in January 1861, following other states in the South after the election of Abraham Lincoln. But it was kind of weird in Louisiana just because it was very divided, so there was a lot of pro-union sentiment as well. But it was essentially economic. The only reason Economics were the only reason that Louisiana joined in the fighting because they had no real other desires like the other Confederate states. But Louisiana, as a result, was quickly defeated with federal troops capturing New Orleans on April 25th, 1862. So, like I said, a large population had union sympathies or compatible commercial interests. So they uh, didn't really care either way about who was the government. They just uh, only cared for economic reasons, I guess. Slavery didn't matter. So the federal government actually took a really unusual step of designating the areas of Louisiana under federal control 
as a state of the union with its elect with elected representatives in Congress. So like part of Louisiana was part of the union and part of it wasn't for a while until the whole thing was taken by the federal troops. So uh, kind of a weird, weird situation. It's not nearly as cut and dry as like Mississippi. Their uh, their declaration was pretty clear <laughs> about why they were seceding from the Union. Louisiana was very different. And following the Civil War and the emancipation of the slaves, uh, violence rose in the South. So the war was actually carried on by insurgent private and paramilitary groups. So the Confederates who refused to give up kept fighting. And there was a lot of tension, especially racial tension, a lot of lynchings. And, and essentially, like, even though... The uh, slaves had been emancipated in the South. Basically, people just held on to them anyways and refused to free them. But finally, the 14th Amendment, which guaranteed suffrage and citizenship to freed slaves, was passed. So, again, it, like, didn't have that big of an impact in the South in the sense that, cool, the law passed, but actual action takes time. But it was still a really big moment, obviously. And it, it did eventually, like, it led to some good things. So... The measure of stability and prosperity that Southern blacks felt was was getting pretty high. Like through the early 1900s, they were really starting to establish themselves in their communities and kind of come out of slavery. So it was getting better. But the problem with that is that it also coincided with the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. So, you know, good things happen. Bad things also happen. And because Louisiana was now officially a state, uh, white Democrats in Louisiana began to take over the state legislature black voting was suppressed and other racist policies were enacted. So in 1900, the state population was 47% African-American. Uh, many in New Orleans were descendants of Creoles of color, which was actually a, the sizable population of free people of color before the Civil War. So they actually weren't, uh, weren't slaves at all. So despite becoming more educated, by 1900, blacks had almost completely been excluded from the political system and couldn't serve as ju on juries. So this happened through just a very variety of, of voting laws, essentially, and like stripping of suffrage. And uh, white Democrats basically established a one-party rule in Louisiana until after congressional passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So basically everything that happened in the very early periods of, the, of Louisiana concerning like black people getting to vote stayed in place until 1965. So in the early decades of the 20th century, thousands of African-Americans left Louisiana and the Great Migration north to urban cities for jobs and to escape Jim Crow society because the lynchings had really gotten... It was bad. I was listening to a different podcast the other day and they mentioned a number about the lynchings that was about this time period. And it was like, I think, it was something like hundreds of lynchings a day. Like, just... It wasn't even a problem for people. It was like, no, we're going to lynch him. <laughs> And so uh, the Great Migration really uh, took a lot of that population from Louisiana, like the other states. Um, better jobs, less chance of being strung up from a tree for nothing. All positive things, I think, if you want to, you know, get a new life. So that's kind of the state itself that, that bred, um, that bred uh, Huey Long. And uh, I think you can tell too you can tell the influences that like where he grew up had on him oh yeah you can definitely tell where his anger originates and where his belief system originates from within the history of louisiana like not just including when, when like or and how he grew up but just from knowing how things were because like if you remember back in those days it was the Dem it was the democratic party that was more conservative conservative yeah and they were the ones that 
Think of the Republicans now, but they were Democrats then. <laughs> it, yeah, exactly, exactly. It was Abraham Lincoln was a Republican, and they'll always try and remind you of that. But he was it's a very the, different party. He was the first Republican president. Was Abraham Lincoln, so... And current Republicans will try and remind you of this, but it's a very different party. So yeah. Don't be fooled. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so Huey Long, he was born Huey Pierce Long Jr. near Winfield on August 30th, 1893, in the seat of Wynn Parish. And it's important to mention where, you, like, the parish name. Instead of counties in Louisiana, they're called parishes, for those who didn't know that. And the area was known to be politically opposite to the rest of Louisiana. So some examples, it was a unionist stronghold during the Civil War. Not only just unionists, but abolitionists tended to flock there as well. It overwhelmingly supported the left-wing populist party during the 1890s. And also a plurality of voters in the parish, so 35%, voted for socialist presidential candidate Eugene Debs in 1912. So it's very politically different from the rest of Louisiana. And I, the one of the places I read this from said it was mostly out of spite. I don't know if that's true or not, but they were very politically different from the rest of Louisiana. So when Parrish suffered from major poverty, even compared to the rest of the state, because Louisiana was ex- an extremely poor state, still is, but at, the t- at that time it was a lot more impoverished and just things were really bad. The Long family were better off than the rest of Wynn Parish. Long's parents were well-educated and made sure that their children understood the importance of gaining an education. Huey was homeschooled until the age of 11 when he entered public school. He quickly gained attention due to his intelligence and exceptional memory. And he excelled at school and even convinced his teachers to allow him to skip the seventh grade. During high school, he attended Winnifield High. And during his time there, he and his friends formed a secret club where members distinguished each other by wearing red ribbons. Long described the group's mission as to, quote, run things, laying down certain rules the students would have to follow, end quote. These antics were discovered by the school and he was given a warning. He eventually began distributing flyers criticizing the teachers and faculty. This resulted in his expulsion in 1910. However, he wrote up a petition to have his the principal fired and managed to get enough signatures. He never returned to school and only received his diploma posthumously. He was active in the debate team while he was attending Winnifield High and won a scholarship to Louisiana State University, or LSU. Sadly, the scholarship did not include money for textbooks or living expenses, and he still could not afford to attend school, so he never went. He would regret not being able to go for the remainder of his life. Instead of university, Long worked as a traveling salesman and at one point as an auctioneer. Long eventually enrolled in the Oklahoma Baptist University at the urging of his mother, who was a devout Baptist. Long hardly attended classes and dropped out after a semester. He admitted to spending most of his time in gambling houses and other entertainment establishments in, in the area. Long met Rose McConnell after she won a bake a baking competition he had organized. The two married in 1913 after a two-and-a-year-half courtship. The couple had one daughter, Rose, and two sons, Russell and Palmer. 
enrolled at Tulane University Law School in New Orleans in the fall of 1914. After studying for one year, he successfully petitioned the Louisiana Supreme Court to allow him to take the bar exam prior to the June 1915 date, and he passed in May of the same year. Yeah, he was quite the he was easily able to make convincing arguments and convince people to it's nothing short of just like tenacious. He was just like you can see the makings of a politician <laughs> early on. He started a private a bold person. Oh in yeah, general. very like, much so. So he started a private practice in Shreveport in 1915 and represented impoverished plaintiffs and small businesses. It was also during this time that he began his political his political or his entrance into politics. His time growing up in impoverished Wynn Parish led long to holding a deep resentment of the rich elite living within Baton Rouge. One of the earliest rivalries he had was long invested $1,050 in an oil well, which managed to strike oil. Now, back in that day, that was a lot. <laughs> However, it was unable to make profit due to Standard Oil refusing to accept any of its oil, meaning Long lost his investment. This incident led, resulted in a Long's lifelong hatred of Standard Oil Company, whom he called the invisible empire run by petroleumites. Long even represented a small oil firm when they sued Standard Oil in 1921 over a lease dispute, and he won. Mm -hmm. Long's first venture towards politics was when he ran to serve on the Louisiana Railroad Commission. He came second in the Democratic primary first vote and won in the runoff. He won due to the country vote, but did poorly in the urban centers of Alexandria, Shreveport, and Monroe. Remember the name Shreve Point. It, it comes up so often during our, the rest of this episode. Long went on, went on to win a seat on the commission. Once sworn in, Long fought to lower utility rates, expanding the railroads to small villages and hamlets, and demanded standard oil and imports of Mexican crude oil in exchange for using Louisiana oil instead, which would have been beneficial to Louisiana and also would have been cheaper to use elsewhere. Long helped campaign for Democratic candidate John M. Parker in the 1920 gubernatorial election, and Long is credited with gaining support for Parker in the northern Louisiana parishes. However, once elected, Parker and Long had a falling out, and the two became bitter rivals. This was the result of Long demanding Parker declare Louisiana oil pipelines to be public utilities, but Parker refused. Long was also outraged when Parker granted the legal counsel of oil companies, particularly Standard Oil, a position assisting the writing of Louisiana's severance tax laws, which dictated the amount of money corporations were required to pay the state for the extraction of natural resources. Parker attempted to remove Long from the LRC, but was unsuccessful. The LRC was later renamed the Public Service Commission, or PSC, in 1922, and Long remained on the commission. He decided to dedicate his public service career to providing a new energy and independence to the agency, and to extend power to the commission. The same year, Long successfully urged the United States Supreme Court to have $440,000 sent to 80,000 customers who were overcharged by the Cumberland Telephone and Telegraph Company. Former President and then Chief Justice William Howard Taft later called Long one of the best legal minds he had ever encountered. Long ran for governor in 1924, 
His campaign attacked outgoing Parker and Standard Oil. He broadcasted his campaign by radio, one of the first Southern politicians to do so. Long placed third during the primary. However, he went on to win re-election on the PSC later that year. Yeah, so he lost to Parker in, in 1924. Um, and he began calling Parker the chattel of the corporations. So, <laughs> so I guess after his loss in 24, he focused his efforts on just trying to, like, uh, well, make the Public Service Commission stronger, but also uh, bolster his own political standing. Yeah, so he ran uh, again in 1928 for governor, and his slogan was, Every man a king, but no one wears a crown. And this was a phrase that was adopted from the Democratic presidential candidate, William Jennings Bryan. His attacks on the utilities industry and corporate privileges were enormously popular, as was his depiction of the wealthy parasites who <laughs> grab more than their fair share of the public wealth while marginalizing the poor. So yeah, he was, he was a populist, uh, like Jonah talked about. Long campaigned mostly in rural areas that were dis disenfranchised by the New Orleans elite. So most of the people at the time spent their efforts campaigning really in New Orleans and some of the big uh, big cities just to try and like get those votes because those were the only people they truly cared about because they were also the only people who could really afford to vote. Because at the time, Louisiana has a thing called the poll tax. And so you have to pay in order to register to vote. And most poor whites, because remember, they're the only people who have access to voting, could not afford to vote. Louisiana at the time had only 300 miles of paved road, so getting around was pretty much impossible. And it also had only three major bridges, and Louisiana is a Gulf state, which is mostly made of uh, sandy delta land that came from the Mississippi River. So there's a lot of water, so you need to cross a lot of bridges. <laughs> and there was only three, and the tolls were high. So the literacy rate in Louisiana at the time was the lowest in the nation. It was 75% illiterate, as most families couldn't afford textbooks to send their kids to school. So just like with Huey Long himself, he couldn't afford to go. Only 300,000 of 2 million total people could afford to register to vote uh, due to the poll tax. So in reality, you didn't need to campaign outside of New Orleans because that's pretty much the entire population that can afford to vote. So in addition, with selective application of literacy tests, blacks also had effectively been and completely disenfranchised. It was one of the things that, that came with the uh, new constitution in 1898, which is what really stripped black residents of their ability to vote. And there was obvious strategic reasons for that. Um, <laughs> like the literacy tests were basically used to try and show black people that like, oh, you can't vote because you can't read. But then once they started to be able to read, they just kind of selectively chose to enforce them or would basically fail you even if you passed so that you couldn't vote. Really sketchy. But one of the major campaign issues ultimately actually concerned bridges. So the, because there was only three and they were expensive to cross, it was obviously a problem in a state like Louisiana. Uh, Long proposed to let contracts for, quote, free bridges over, to, er, over Lake Pontchartrain. And so basically it was just like a way to get bridges built for cheap. And actually his opponents signed on to this and uh, over... Yeah, free ferries ran while construction proceeded on the bridges. The previous toll bridge charge of $8.40 was changed to $0.60. Cents. So it was no longer, like, impossible to enter the city of New Orleans unless you had a lot of money because $8 in 1928 was actually a decent, pretty significant amount of money. It's also a pretty big toll in general, honestly. So despite 
really negative coverage by the majority of the state's newspapers, long managed to gain the support of the New Orleans states and the Shreveport Times. The New Orleans Pekin and the Shreveport Caucasian supported Simpson, one of his uh, opponents. And uh, the New Orleans item supported Wilson, his other component. So he at least got two, two newspapers, which was important, especially in a city like New Orleans and Shreveport, but mostly in New Orleans because New Orleans elite and he's the one, they're the ones he's attacking. Uh, Long's seemingly inexhaustible energy just gave him an advantage because he went to all of these really rural places and he just traveled like nonstop. It was kind of similar to a lot of other of these major campaigns at the time that were starting to really like populist leaders were starting to rise because they embraced technology and just like this really gritty type style of we're going to meet, we're going to shake every hand, kiss every baby and talk to every person because we need, (laughs) we need those votes. He was a really theatrical speaker, and his theatrical oratory combined insulting his opponents and the corporations he blamed for the state's underdevelopment. He promised to increase educational funding, uh, such as and then free textbooks, public hospitals, and, of course, free, bridge, free bridges and road improvements. He also campaigned, ultimately, against the corruption and wastefulness of previous administrations. His opponents in the Democratic primary, Riley and, Wilson, Riley and Simpson, didn't really offer many defenses of the status quo because they were ultimately running in the status quo. And they were often overwhelmed when next to Long at debates and other campaign events. A widely publicized fistfight between Long and former Governor Jared Sanders during the campaign did nothing to damage Long's popularity. (laughs) So he won the Democratic primary, but did not win a majority of votes. But because the other candidates saw how insanely popular he was, he won the vote by like a massive margin. They decided to not run in the uh, runoff election that was actually permitted in the constitution. So long carried the win. He, in the primary, he won 47 of 64 parishes, including the majority of the rural parishes in both Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, Northern and French Catholic, Southern Louisiana, a nearly unprecedented accomplishment up to that time. Only New Orleans, still firmly controlled by the democratic establishment, spurned along in favor of the political machine's chosen candidate. (laughs) So yeah, so he ended up winning primary And then he carried that success into the actual gubernatorial election itself, the general election. Uh, The Republicans put forward a candidate named Etienne Kerr, who was a sugarcane farmer and businessman. In the end, he only polled 4% of the vote, so he really didn't put up much of a fight. The 96% of the vote that, (laughs) that Long got to get him into the governor's mansion was uh, impressive, but the thing to remember is that 96, 96% of the vote isn't that many votes. It was actually only 92,941 total votes mm. because only 300,000 people in the entire state can afford to vote for something like that. Probably, yeah. Only, you know, a couple, a select group of people can actually afford to vote. So it was, uh, it's an overwhelming landslide, but also not a very large voting population. He consolidated the Democratic factions of New Orleans and got people on board for expansion and improvement in Louisiana. Essentially, the state faced a realignment period just based on urban and rural class-based divisions and rather than religious and cultural divisions, which were actually the main divisions at the time. So in a way, that's kind of positive because it now at least gets moved towards talking about policy, not just ethnic things. So yeah, it it was important for sure. And as with, you know, other people... Long would eventually fall out with some of his allies at the time. So he had a lot of allies to get him elected and they were on the same page. And then he felt that they, or they felt that he was, you know, 
awful and or he felt the same and they fell out. It's a pretty common theme in his life. He falls out with everybody, <laughs> um, pretty much. But uh, these three LSU scholars, uh, Harvard, Heberly, and Howard, contended that before his governorship, political power in Louisiana had nearly been a monopoly of the, or of the coalition of businessmen and, planta- and planters, which was reinforced by the oil men and other industrialists. The situation changed when Long won the hearts and votes of the farmers and other small people and created an over, er, sorry, a countervailing power combination. So he essentially united the like poorest classes in the state and fought against the big business people who ran the state and managed to win. So that was the election. And now he's governor. Before we get into his governorship, uh, we're going to briefly explain what type of political person Huey Long was. So where what what his political and social policies were. You've heard us already call him this. He was what's known as a left-wing populist, which populism is a term that's really starting to come back today. And basically the way the way I describe Huey Long is he was Bernie Sanders before Bernie Sanders. I totally had the same thought. <laughs> and also a more extreme Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I don't want to make this comparison because I hate the person I'm about to kind of compare him and compare him to, but he's not all that un, like unlike Trump in terms of his tactics. Yeah, definitely different ideology ideologically, just, in, in yeah. every way. But Op- opposite, complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. But yeah, he, he like he's basically just even the way he acted ultimately. He has <laughs> the he has the same kind of political beliefs of Bernie Sanders with the tactics of Trump or the speaking power of Trump, I guess. More coherent, though. Yeah, I think we've said that man's name too many times now, so we're going to move on. At least who you alone could string a sentence together, though, so... Pretty much. That's a thing. So what is left-wing populism? Populism is the process of appealing to the regular people as opposed to the elite. Left-wing populism is using left-wing policies to appeal to the people... It is often characterized as anti-elitist, anti-establishment, and giving a voice to the common people. Often includes rhetoric of anti-capitalism, social justice, pacifism, and anti-globalization, along with a heavy emphasis on egalitarian ideals. In Long's case, it was to work for the impoverished people of Louisiana, improve their lives and working conditions, establish benefits and programs to advance their quality of life and education, and develop Louisiana's infrastructure to better connect the small villages, hamlets, and parishes with the rest of the state. He refused to rely on Southern tradition and to stoop down to race baiting, and he's often viewed by modern historians as an egalitarian, although one I found, Glenn Jeanson, argued long-held prejudices and wasn't very different from other Southern politicians at the time. Basically, in Jeanson's words, he just wasn't as prejudiced as his peers. Uh, the same historian also pointed out that Long also never had to be in an election where dealing with racial issues was a problem. Yeah, exactly. So it's hard to know. It's very hard to know. All we can know is by what Huey said himself. So, for example, he said, quote, I'm for the poor man. All poor men, black and white, they all got to have a chance. They gotta have a home, a job, and a decent education for their children. Every man a king. That's my slogan. He's also quoted as saying, quote, Treat them just the same as anybody else. Give them an opportunity to make a living and to get an education. Yeah, I don't, 
I don't think that, I mean, I definitely don't know how strongly I feel either way about how he was on racial issues only because I, I do think that he probably would have ultimately gone the way of most Southern Democrats. I don't think he would have not agreed with segregation. I don't think he would have disagreed with segregation because they still would have ultimately been given educations and things like that. So I don't know. It's hard to know. And I wish that we did know. <laughs> yeah. It's, it will never, we, 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 lo- yeah. we don't have, a, we never had a chance to find that out, but yeah. yeah, he was a devout Baptist and often quoted from the Bible to defend his political programs. He often claimed he lost count of how many times he read the Bible However, Long's brother Julius later stated Long only mastered the verses their mother read to them. <laughs> so it's kind of hard. It's funny because like a lot of like his brothers became kind of a little bit popular after Huey died because people would ask him what he was like. And they were it's it's funny reading like about his family because they're a lot more humble than Huey was. <laughs> so Julius would say stuff like Julius revealed that. He doesn't think his brother actually read the Bible countless times. He just mastered certain verses that helped him push his platform. Which, I mean, is probably no different from a lot of politicians today, but that's neither here nor there. He was also a critic of Hitler, despite being often compared to the man. You'll find out why. He is once quoted as saying, quote, I don't know much about Hitler, except that last thing about the Jews. There has never been a country that puts its heel down on the Jews that has ever lived long afterwards, end quote. He once confronted a journalist very aggressively when the journalist compared them to Hitler and long retorted back saying, quote, don't liken me to that son of a bitch. Anybody that lets his public politics be mixed up with religious prejudice is a plain goddamn fool, end quote. (laughs) So now Huey is governor. So what was the first thing he did? His first goal was to secure his own power, which he began by firing hundreds of opponents who worked in state bureaucracy, including cabinet members, and filled the vacancies with his supporters and friends. That may sound bad, but you got to remember Every single elected official does this. Yeah, it's pretty normal. (laughs) It doesn't matter what party you're in. Everybody does this. Long created what he called his political war chest. And he expected every state employee to contribute a portion of their salary to it. He raised between $50,000 and $75,000 per election cycle. Now, today... Adjusted for inflation, that's between seven hundred thousand and a million dollars. Long would use these funds at his own discretion for either political or personal reasons. Long pushed through several several bills during the nineteen twenty nine session of Louisiana's legislature in an effort to fulfill his campaign promises. He got much of the bills passed through intimidation and even blackmail. He's even accused of blackmailing a Baptist minister by luring him into a hotel room full of liquor and a prostitute. Sounds like you. (laughs) His first program included free textbooks for school children because, surprise, surprise, during that time, children from elementary school to high school had to pay for the fucking textbooks. The idea was brought to Long's attention by his friend John Sparks Patton, 
the Claiborne Parish School Superintendent. And he, of course, like like everyone today, thought that it was just absolutely preposterous that school children would be forced to pay for textbooks well, when I they're mean, in elementary. He had to, exactly. So. <laughs> yeah. so uh, he also implemented adult night literacy courses, which successfully taught a hundred thousand people by the completion of his governorship. And he also brought in legislation which supplied New Orleans with cheap natural gas. If you if you've ever been to New Orleans, you'll know how important gas lamps and whatnot have been all throughout its history. Long also worked to improve the infrastructure, establish public work programs, build hospitals and educational institutions. Despite stiff opposition from the opposition leaders, the wealthy and the media long refused to back down. Long would often show up to the House or Senate of Louisiana without prior warning in order to personally whip voting support for legislation and to harass opponents. So he'd just be wandering around on the floor during a session, like in people's face. He's a shithead. In a like, lot of in but ways. But like a lovable shithead in a weird way. <laughs> oh yeah. These tactics allowed for most of Long's legislations to pass, fulfilling most of his campaign promises, and he was seen by a hero to the poor. The conservative-leaning Caddo Parish, where, surprise, surprise, Shreveport is located, sued the state government in an attempt to not have to distribute the free textbooks, refusing to accept what they called charity. In response... Long withheld his approval for the construction of an Army Air Corps base to be built in the parish until the books were accepted. In the end, Caddo Parish relented. Yeah. Threaten their wallets and yeah. all of a sudden. <laughs> in 1929, Long held a special joint house session where he introduced a motion to implement a five cent per barrel tax on production of refined oil, which was dubbed an occupational license tax in order to fund and expand the social programs. This led Long opponents to finally band together and attempt to impeach him. The move was led by lawmaker Cecil Morgan of, can you guess it, Shreveport, and Ralph Norman Bauer of a place called Franklin in St. Mary Parish on charges ranging from blasphemy to abuse of power, bribery, and misuse of state funds. Which, I mean... The latter of that is probably true. Yeah. I mean, all of it was probably true, but, like, to well, some extent, I guess. Blasphemy is kind of difficult, that's too. A, that's a weird one. Yeah. I don't really know that that's an impeachable <laughs> thing, either. It's Louisiana, we'll never, or the South, so maybe. Long attempted to defuse the situation, but a brawl erupted amongst legislatures and state senators, an incident dubbed Bloody Monday. The legislature ended up voting to begin impeachment proceedings. Undeterred, Long used this to voice his outrage over the influence of big oil companies, which Long dubbed the Oil Trust, and how they used their political influence to defeat proposals of taxation on oil. Long took to the road, conducting a speaking tour across the state. He accused Standard Oil, corporate interests and conservative oppositions of colluding to halt Long's attempt to improve the conditions of Louisiana and to aid the poor. Charges were drawn up in the House and then passed to the Senate. A conviction for impeachment required a two-thirds majority to pass. 
Long managed to convince 15 senators to vote not guilty. These senators didn't necessarily feel Long was not guilty, but rather the impeachment was illegal. This effectively halted the impeachment process. Both sides of the political sphere were accused of using bribery to buy votes, which is probably true. Super not surprising. To the The, surprise of no one. Oh, yeah. The episode led Long to adopt more ruthless tactics when dealing with his political enemies. Like when you hear he's already adopting more ruthless tactics, it kind of like makes you go, whoa. Relatives of Long's rivals were fired from their state jobs and Long endorsed candidates who were seen as the best to defeat other political enemies during regional elections. Long also decided extra legal methods would be required where he's were he to successfully defend the interests of the common people against the rich elite. He's quoted as saying, I used to try and get things done by saying, please. Now I dynamite them out of my path. That's not a bad strategy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Had an unsuccessful session throughout 1930 with a new road building initiative and construction of a new state capitol building defeated. In response, Long announced he was running for U.S. Senate in the Democratic primary. He treated his campaign as a state referendum, saying, basically, if he won, it meant that the uh, people of Louisiana supported his programs, and if he lost, he would take it as a sign citizens were unhappy with him, and he would immediately resign as governor. Long won the election, (laughs) defeating incumbent Joseph E. Ranstell, gaining 57.3% of the vote, or 149,640 people. And here's the thing. He didn't cheat the election. He won that money. He won that, he won that election fair and square. Well, the thing with the general elections for Huey Long is I don't think he cheated any of the general elections. No. Like, he cheated the stuff in the House because politics is slimy and he was willing to get in the slime. But he didn't, like, coerce voters otherwise he didn't have to yeah the thing is like what you got to remember he's long was loved by a lot of people in louisiana i don't need to remember that i know that (laughs) i'm telling you my audience but yeah um (laughs) so despite now being senator long remained as louisiana's governor arguing leaving the senate seat vacant would for the remaining two years would not be an issue saying quote with ransdale as senator the seat was vacant anyways (laughs) Gutless. <laughs> now, yeah. So I there's a bit of an issue in the states because, like, I don't think you can hold two political offices at once. Okay. However, this Huey didn't seem to give a shit. Constitution? What constitution? Basically, yeah. Well, this enticed Lieutenant Governor, or excuse me, Lieutenant Governor Paul N. Sear, to initiate what is known as a political coup. Because he argued it was unconstitutional for Long to hold both the posts of senator and governor, which, yeah, it's it's probably true. I haven't looked this up. No, it but actually it's, is. Okay, <laughs> totally unconstitutional. Sear declared himself the rightful governor of Louisiana. Once Long's term as senator began on March 4th, 1931, Sear traveled to Shreveport and took the oath of office as governor. However, when he attempted to enter the Louisiana Capitol building to assume office... The state guards blocked his access and supporters of Long gathered to denounce the attempted takeover. Sear was eventually escorted away by the guards. Long then ordered Sear's arrest as an imposter and filled the lieutenant governor position 
with state with the Senate President Pro Tempore and long ally Alvin O. King. Sear attempted to again oust Long in that October, but Long ordered the National Guard to mobilize surrounding the Capitol building with orders not to allow Sear to enter. Louisiana State Police also supported Long, meaning Sear had no support, no supportive groups. Or security. Or security. He was eventually forced to vacate his position as lieutenant governor, and King took his place immediately. Sear went on to be one of the most vocal, long opposers in Louisiana politics. Fair reason on his part. I mean, like, understandably. (laughs) Um. So following these events, Long's popularity skyrocketed. He managed to make friends with former rivals in New Orleans, namely the regular Democratic organization and Mayor T. Sems Wamsley. They agreed to support his legislation in exchange for funding to build a bridge over the Mississippi, an airport, and improvements to infrastructure within the city. Long also hired New Orleans architect Leon C. Weiss to design a new state capitol, a new governor's mansion, the Charity Hospital in New Orleans, and new buildings for the Louisiana State University and other post-secondary institutions across the state. So the state cap- new state capitol was built. It is still being used today, and it is the tallest state capitol building in the United States. Of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> also, interesting fact, Huey Long's statue is out right outside in the park, looking right at the, at the leg- legislature. And just in case you're wondering, yes, the governor's office is right on the top floor of the tower. Because obviously. Because reasons. He also secured support for an increase in, on gasoline tax, which he used to finance road construction, about $75 million worth, education funding, and the new capital. This was also during the time he gained his nickname, the Kingfish, after the master of the Mystic Knights of the Sea Lodge, of which the fictional duo Amos and Andy belonged. <laughs> and finally, just the last thing that to mention he helped establish the LSU medical school in New Orleans so finally there was a proper medical institution within Louisiana yeah so now we have senator Huey Long he's now been you know governor now he's senator the thing that's interesting mostly about his senate period is that it overlapped like pretty much one of the most tumultuous periods of American history and overlapped with two very important figures or with some very important figures both Republican President Herbert Hoover and Democratic President FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So I guess a little bit of background. In 1929, in October, the U.S. stock market crashed, which was known as Black Tuesday. Yeah, Black Tuesday. <laughs> like, suddenly questioning my day, days of week here. Yeah, Black Tuesday. And pretty much overnight, like, everybody lost everything. Uh, I mean, it wasn't quite that sudden, but basically. (laughs) And people were losing their homes, their jobs, their livelihoods, their ability to survive. And so this was this is a really important like context for understanding where Long is situated, I guess, in this. Yeah, so he he missed more than half the days of his first first term. Despite that, though, he gained attention as a leading member of the progressive bloc. He made really fiery speeches attacking politicians close to Hoover and big business for not adequately dealing with the crisis. So Herbert Hoover was more or less paralyzed when the stock market crashed and when the depression started to be ushered in and, you know, people were losing their homes and they ended up in 
basically refugee camps, which were nicknamed Hoovervilles. It was not a very good look for Hoover. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I do think history is a little bit less kind to Hoover than uh, it might need to be, but that's neither here nor there at the moment. But regardless, he definitely failed miserably at doing anything to deal with the Depression. I don't think he understood, I don't think anybody really understood what it was, why it happened, or how they could get out of it. And I think that it just paralyzed the government. And Hoover was definitely seen as, and the Republican Party in general, but Hoover especially was very much seen as being tied to big business, who we know Huey Long is not fond of. (laughs) So... During the presidential election in 1932, Long became a really vocal supporter of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He believed FDR to be the only candidate willing and able to carry out the drastic redistribution of wealth from the hands of the few. And this was really his main like talking point, was the redistribution of wealth. Uh, Long believed that this was necessary to end the Great Depression. This was the only thing that was going to truly end it. So during the Democratic National Convention, Long was instrumental in keeping the delegations of several wavering states in the Roosevelt camp. So the thing we know about Huey Long, essentially, is that he was a great, like, whip. He could get you votes. Might not be kosher. He'll get you votes. (laughs) Um, You may not respect how, but he'll get them for you. And he, yeah, he did a big, big service to FDR in getting him elected. But so Long, as a result, expected to be featured prominently in the Roosevelt campaign, but instead was saddled with a Midwest speaking tour in four states. So that was a disappointment for Huey Long. He was really hoping to uh, leverage some of his his helping of FDR into some more political capital, but no dice. But he did find other venues for his populist message, campaigning to elect Hattie Carraway of Arkansas to her first full term in Senate. She had been appointed this seat previously upon the death of her husband, and so she decided to run in a very crowded primary, or a very crowded election in Arkansas. And with Long's help, she became the first woman elected to the the U.S. Senate. She appreciated his efforts, but did tell Long that she would continue to use independent judgment and not allow him to dictate how she would vote on Senate bills. Because she, like everyone else, understood how Huey Long worked. He expected returns on his favors. (laughs) But uh, I didn't find anything else about their relationship, so I assume he didn't hate her after that. Um... (laughs) Or, yeah, anyways, (laughs) Long was, they didn't have a falling out. It's one of the few he didn't have a falling out with, because he had a falling out with the mayor of New Orleans as well. Was an ally, no longer an ally. It happens. (laughs) This is Long's world. He was generally a supporter of the New Deal in the first hundred days, which were by far the most important in the history of the Depression. Uh, The most legislation was passed, the most policies were floated. It was really a sign that uh, the government was trying, and so it was quite popular. And Long was generally a supporter Roosevelt was a pretty left-wing candidate, but Long obviously was more left-wing. The one thing he did disagree with the president on most seriously was the subject of patronage. So patronage is the ability to appoint judges and appoint people, essentially, into seats. And Long obviously disagreed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He didn't like patronage. But Roosevelt wanted control of patronage, and the two men broke late in 1933. Long was aware that FDR was not going to redistribute wealth and became one of the few national politicians to criticize the New Deal from the left. So pretty much every criticism of the New Deal came from the right, from Republicans who thought it was charity and that the market will fix itself, et cetera, et cetera. That all these people suffering will be fine once the market corrects. So Huey Long really separated himself by becoming one of the few to actually come at Roosevelt from the other direction. He considered most of Roosevelt's policies inadequate, in the face of the escalating economic crisis. So 
just because FDR got elected doesn't mean the Depression is even near over. Uh, most of his first two terms, really, are consumed by the Depression, and it keeps getting worse at this point. It really peaked around this time, actually. Like, around 1935 is when it really started to peak in terms of being bad. He did sometimes vote for FDR, though, and said that, quote, whenever this administration has gone to the left, I have voted with it, and whenever it has gone to the right, I have voted against it. So he was nothing if not principled. And, I, and I, to some extent, I do actually respect that. Like, I, I think that we do get this really pic- this picture of every Democrat being like, yeah, FDR, and yeah, this is amazing, and yeah, New Deal. And it's like, I think there are some legitimate criticisms, and I do feel that it's nice to see. I do respect someone who is, is principled like that. Like, he, he believed that it could have been better, <laughs> and it probably could have. But importantly, Long opposed the National Recovery Act, which was like the main piece of legislation that FDR wanted to put through in the New Deal. So it was a labor law that was passed by Congress to authorize the president to regulate an industry for fair wages and prices so that it would stimulate economic recovery. So it essentially meant that people would actually make a fair wage. Because the idea is that when more, this is how capitalism works, when people have money in their pockets, they buy things, which prospers businesses, and then businesses can hire people and pay those people money and blah, blah. The cycle continues. So the hope was that by making sure that people got fair wages and jobs, that it would allow more money to go into the economy and therefore it would slowly crawl out of the abyss that it was in. But Long opposed this because he called it a sellout to big business, which is a fair criticism because Roosevelt was very willing to work with industry leaders, which I think in his, to fairness, in fairness to Roosevelt, he had to, to some extent, you can't call out everybody and expect to get your way unless you're Huey Long. Um, so he called it a sellout, and in 1933, he was the leader of a three-week Senate filibuster. Oh, my God. <laughs> against the glass banking bill for favoring the interests of national banks over state banks. <laughs> so he first opposed the, opposed NERA, which was the National Recovery Act, and then later it was like, I'm going to filibuster the hell out of this place, <laughs> and three whole weeks <laughs> filibustered against a bill. And you can't leave... You can't, you can't sit down, you can't stop talking, you can't leave, you can't do anything. You have to stay there standing, talking. And he did this for three weeks. <laughs> like, you can have somebody tag in technically, though. Yeah, you can. And so I imagine he wasn't actually doing it for three whole weeks himself, but, like, still. That's an incredible freaking filibuster. And actually impressive if he did have people step in, because he wasn't all that popular. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I'll get to that. Um... He did later support the bill, though. It became the Glass-Steagall Act because there were provisions that were added to extend the government deposit insurance to state banks as well. So the Glass-Steagall legislation basically is four provisions of the United States Banking Act, which separates commercial and investment banking because a big problem with how with the stock market crash was how the banks operated, and there was no insurance on the money in the banks. That's why everybody lost everything all at once is because you know, their money was not actually there and couldn't be insured, wasn't insured. So you lost it all if it was in the bank. And I think that Long, I didn't read too much into this admittedly, but he obviously wanted what was, he, he really believed in states' rights. I mean, I think that he did everything with the state of Louisiana in mind, especially since he was also still basically governor at the same time. Um, <laughs> so he had some, he was invested in things like state banks being supported. So, but I do, I do think I understand his criticism and I, I think I understand why he would want insurance to be extended to state banks as well. Cause a lot of people relied on state banks, not just national banks. 
And also by supporting state banks, you're taking away some power from really, really, really big banks, which like in 2008, we also saw was a thing. (laughs) So anywho, historian. Oh, yeah. Actually, funny thing. The president's mother called him that awful man, which is. (laughs) Hilarious. That was his other nickname. So he was nicknamed the Kingfish by his friends and that awful man by the president's mother. (laughs) Historian David Kennedy wrote that, quote, Long strode into the national arena in the role of hillbilly hero and played it with a gusto. He wore white silk suits and pink silk ties, womanized openly, swilled whiskey in in the finest bars, swaggered his way around Washington, and breathed defiance into the teeth of of his critics. Long's flamboyant ways and populist style made him into one of the best-known senators in the nation. And uh, he did have, like, really widespread popularity, but not everyone really liked him. The kingfish wasn't popular with everyone, including the president. Not a great enemy to make. FDR thought that he was a radical demagogue and privately said to uh, General MacArthur that, quote, or that Long was, quote, one of the two most dangerous men in America. He didn't really specify who the other dangerous man in America was, but obviously Huey Long was one of the two. Long met with the president at the White This is funny and also really not funny. Long met the president at the White House in 1933, but the meeting was a disaster as Long very flagrantly disrespected the president, calling him Frank instead of Mr. President, which is a huge breach in protocol. So obviously, FDR wasn't wild about it, and they uh, weren't on good terms. As a result, pretty shortly after that, FDR actually attempted to undermine Long's political dominance by cutting him out of con cutting him out of consultations on the distribution of federal funds or patronage in Louisiana and placed opponents of Long's in charge of all federal programs in the states, in that state. So it was a pretty big insult that, first of all, the Kingfish opposed patronage generally. And second, he uh, didn't even get to be part of any decisions made about his own state, who is... And and I I can understand why he'd be mad, and also it's kind of a shady move on Roosevelt's part in a way. I mean, I understand also why he did it. But, like... I'm willing to bet you that pretty much nobody else give it, gave a shit about Louisiana. Like, in reality. And, like, FDR probably also didn't that much, because he's from New York and had bigger fish to fry. So, like the kingfish. Um, <laughs> pun and not intended, but here we are. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so, I don't know, that was, like, it's, like, a little shady, but they're uh, probably not nearly, it's not nearly as shady as Huey Long was himself anyway, so. Politics. Hashtag politics. Um, To damage Long's support base, FDR had him investigated by the IRS in 1934. And he also had him investigated in a Senate Senate inquiry into an election of an ally of Long's. They were charged with election fraud and voter intimidation, but the inquiry came up empty. And uh, John H. Overton was the person in question. And he was seated. So since this first attempt didn't work, FDR had... Long's finances investigated by the IRS in 1934. They failed to link Long to any illegality, which is impressive. Like, obviously, Long really just, like, covered his tracks or something, because, like, either he was not that shady or he was really good at covering his tracks. Or that's not where he was shady. Or, exactly. I think it's probably the latter. Probably, yeah. (laughs) Um, To some extent. But some of his lieutenants were charged with income tax evasion, but only one of them actually was convicted by the time Long died, so... Not really serious charges, I don't think. But his so Long's radical populist rhetoric and aggressive tactics did little to endear him to his colleagues, and he never passed a single bill, despite an overwhelming Democratic majority. Yeah, he was super not popular in the Senate. Um, one senator remarked that Huey Long um, 
wouldn't even be able to get the Lord's Prayer endorsed by the Senate because he was hated that much. But it's kind of funny because Wong had a completely opposite view of the Senate. He praised his colleagues and often called them, and he was quoted as saying that the Senate was, quote, 96 men of varied and sundry political complexions informed on all subjects and questions separately and collectively, far better than I had ever expected 90-odd men to be. So he had a lot of high respect for the Senate, despite the fact that they all hated him, which is, I don't know, kind of interesting. I think that Long actually, like, probably respected people more than anything. Like, he, I think he probably even respected his opponents, and that's also why he wanted to crush them. <laughs> like, yeah, probably. I imagine. I don't know. I think he, he had, I think he had high respect for people who, who tried their best to do their best for the people they represented, and I think that the Senate, in general, that's what it's supposed to represent, and I think he had a lot of deference for the body, and... There were some senators at the time who certainly weren't, who were certainly trying to do good things. And I mean, they all did good things because the New Deal happened and a lot of good things happened. So, yeah, it's kind of an interesting uh, juxtaposition of them all hating him really badly. Like, they hated him so hard. And yet he, he didn't mind them. He thought they were pretty all right. Long remained popular with the people, though. And those are the people that ultimately matter. I guess you don't really have to care about your colleagues too much no, if the people are still going to elect you. Especially to Huey Long. Yeah. Like the people who are electing him matter so much more to him than the people he works with. And in one letter written in 1934 to Eleanor Roosevelt. So I have this book that's a collection. It's called Letters from the Forgotten Man or something. It's essentially full of letters that were written to Eleanor Roosevelt during this time. She was very prominent in uh, talking to people and getting hearing stories and whatnot. And a big problem at the time during the Depression was actually the plight of senior citizens and older people in the United States because there was no social security, there was no like pensions, there was no anything. So there's no social safety net at all in the United States prior to the Depression. And so something like the Depression just completely ruined everybody and especially older people and, well, obviously people who are already poor, but older people already tended to be worse off. So in this letter from Mrs. S. from Oklahoma... She declared that there was a problem with the, the concentration of wealth and said that, quote, call Huey, Long in, call Huey Long in, whether you like him or not. Ask him about spreading the wealth. Maybe the Wall Street gang have killed him by, by this time. Anyway, the, <laughs> the more Morgan-controlled newspapers say and make fun of the, or make fun, the more people are for him. As we see it, Huey Long is the only man in Washington who is trying to do anything to help the old people. So basically, people had a really like deep mistrust of a lot of big newspapers because they trashed Huey Long, but people are like, well, but he's doing good things and he's actually caring. So the more of these newspapers that are owned by these big banks say bad things about him, the more we want to like him because he's the only one trying. Kind of funny that she, <laughs> she talks about him potentially being dead by then. <laughs> Especially like she's predicting that Wall Street's going to kill him. Which honestly is not an unfair prediction. Like, that's it's not an unfair thing to say because based on how much he fucking hated Wall Street, like yeah, and a, a big like piece of rhetoric is ultimately that you know Wall Street's a bunch of goons, and so I mean it's not entirely wrong. No, like I think that Mrs. S was completely justified in assuming that there was a reasonable chance that he would have been killed by Wall Street already. But anyways, that that letter was really like a good just example of how much like national attention he had, like. I mean, Oklahoma's not, like, that far from Louisiana, I suppose. But still, I mean, he had a lot of national attention. People really cared about him. But, I, like Jonah mentioned, Long also still continued to maintain effective control of Louisiana <laughs> while he was a senator. 
which really blurred the boundaries between federal and state politics. He had absolutely no constitutional right to do so, but he continued to draft and press bills through the, the state legislature, which remained in the hands of his allies. So he basically had, like, a puppet government put in. Not quite, but... <laughs> <laughs> like, like, no, no, that's totally the best way to it explain is. I it. Mean, I mean, it is. I, I don't think that... I do think that the, the governor had a little more power than that, but, like, he essentially was just placeholding for Huey Long in some yeah. way. The governor at the time was Oscar K. Allen, uh, who was just... He was an ally of, of Long's. Long's made frequent trips to Baton Rouge to pressure the legislature into enacting his legislation, including new consumer taxes, elimination of the poll tax, a homestead tax exemption, and increase in the number of state employees. He had a personal interest in seeing the quick construction of US-61, which is a hot interstate between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. Um, and this was like kind of selfish, because usually whenever he came to Louisiana, he would stay at the Roosevelt Hotel in New Orleans, and he was a frequent fan of the Cesarac Bar. So he, <laughs> so he wanted US-61 to, it's called the Airline Highway, he had a personal interest in seeing its quick construction because it shaved like 40 miles off of his trip. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it was important to him, you know? <laughs> oh, man. Wong and his loyal friend, Governor Allen, retaliated against those who voted against him and used patronage and state funding, so mostly highways, uh, highway funding, to maneuver Louisiana toward what opponents called a, quote, long dictatorship. Which is kind of funny when you say it out loud, because it, it's like long referring to the name and also not a very optimistic outcome. Yep. Well, what's, what's even greater, I love this, is uh, his Senate, Senate office when he was in Louisiana was the governor's office. Yep. yep. <laughs> and he would also, also just like, he would berate the governor in public and would also like go and sit on representatives and senators' desks and like sternly lecture them on his positions. Yep. It's like, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to tell you why you're going to vote this way and you're going to do it because <laughs> I'm going to tell you why. Right. Well, uh, Alvin O. King, who was or lieutenant governor, he, we're Canadian people. That's why I keep saying lieutenant. But the lieutenant governor who originally took over for Huey just did whatever Huey said for him to do as governor and he yeah. would do it. It was also during this period that, uh, well, yeah, so Long, uh, Long broke with Mayor Walmsley in New Orleans and inserted himself into the election, the mayoral election of 1934. And basically a rift developed between Long and the city of New Orleans that didn't really deal, didn't really get dealt with until long after Long died. <laughs> because that was a, yeah. 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 What's interesting, actually, though, is that uh, that tax that almost got him impeached, he actually... Um, <laughs> He uh, brought it back in. <laughs> so Long did a couple of things. He reorganized the state government, which reduced the authority of local governments and anti-Long strongholds like New Orleans, Baton Rouge, and Alexandria, and further gave the governor the power to appoint all state employees. He passed what he called a tax on lying and a 2% tax on newspaper advertising revenue. <laughs> he created the Bureau of Criminal Identification, a special force of plainclothes police answerable only to the governor. So that's uncomfortable. Um, he also had the legislature enact the same tax on refined oil that in 1929 had le nearly led to his impeachment. Um, he used this as a bargaining chip because he wanted to promote oil drilling in Louisiana, not just refining. So after Standard Oil agreed that 80% of the oil sent to its refineries would be drilled in Louisiana, Long took away the tax and didn't actually enact it. Ah. He basically just like strong-armed Standard Oil into 
So it was just it was just a fear tactic, essentially. Yeah, it was a bargaining chip. Which of the three of the things I mentioned in that in that little stint, that's probably not the worst thing he did. Was trying to get jobs in Louisiana. Well, I mean, of all the people that (laughs) the other stuff, not so good. Like, yeah, I think special police force of all the companies that I think deserve to have the get strong armed. Oh, Standard Oil is it? Oh yeah, yeah. that's a company that needs to be strong armed all the time. (laughs) So. Yeah. They got their comeuppance eventually, but that's yeah. a whole different story. Yeah. We'll probably talk about that eventually, but anywho. <laughs> During this whole time, Long was developing a new program that is known as Share the Wealth, or Share Our Wealth program. And if you, at the beginning of this episode, you'll hear that speech that he was making. That's what he's talking about. This is That's his explanation for what the Share Our Wealth program is. Like when he says... You got to make that man who take all that, like make him bring some of that grub back. That's his explanation for it. So this is Long's, I consider it Long's magnum opus. <laughs> I, don't, I know it's not the right term for political legislation like that, but that's basically what it is. It, it is, though. It was his main, his main thing. So he be, I mean, yeah. FDR had the New Deal and Long had share our wealth. wealth. Uh, it was unveiled in a radio speech on February 23rd, 1934. So another proud thing to have on my birthday. Uh, <laughs> Worst things for sure. <laughs> yeah, like having it on International Dog Biscuit Day. Anyway, <laughs> uh, called for the... It, it, it's true. It is okay. unfortunately true. Uh, it called for the confiscation of all personal earnings above $5 million. Although this was originally $50 million, but lowered. And it introduced an income tax on annual earnings exceeding $1 million. The government would redistribute this wealth to ensure all Americans could afford a house, a car, a radio, and, quote, the ordinary conveniences, end quote. So I'm assuming they didn't say what the ordinary conveniences were, but I'm going to assume that's food, electricity, electricity and at the time, water. Because at the time, a lot of the South during this period had a problem of not being electrified. So there was no access to electricity. And so things like the Tennessee Valley Project at the time were really big because they brought electricity to the people. So I'm thinking that that's something he was probably referencing. Probably, yeah. Because I'm, that was a big deal. I'm sure food was... Also, well, yeah, I'm sure obviously, food was there. But, but yeah, you, you t- when, like, yeah I'm sh- utilities was probably a huge part of it. Just, it's easy to extrapolate that or infer that based on how much he just talked about u- how important utilities were his political career, like, he really focused on utilities and infrastructure. He didn't really do much, like, he really wasn't famous for foreign policy or anything Right, like and when you also, like, consider how few parish, like, of the parishes, especially in northern Louisiana, had indoor plumbing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, that's, yeah, that's probably a lot, a, a lot more of what he was referring yeah. to, basic, for sure. Basically, basic human utilities and needs that, like, we enjoy now and don't think about. Exactly, exactly. All family households were guaranteed an income of between $2,000 and $2,500 annually. Equivalency to today for adjusting for inflation is between $37,727.76 and $47,159.70. Kind of interesting how like spot on his numbers were because in a way that's kind of... Like, that number, like, the low number especially, is kind of the number that's, like, based on, like, what most policies of, uh, like, basic income that are starting to come in. That's, like, a number they're aiming for. Is that, like, kind of 37000 a year range? Because that's, yeah. So it's kind of interesting how, like, yeah 
I spot think, on his numbers were in a way of yeah. like this is a reasonable amount. I mean, it's not a lot here, but still. No, I, but it's. I think someone. I, I someone can correct me if I, if I'm wrong, but I read somewhere that apparently people, in order to live a comfortable like life, uh, need to be making upwards of like twenty thousand dollars a year. I'm like, sorry. I, like to live a comfortable life and actually be able to get po- by. Like now. I don't think it's now, no, but it now was, the poverty line is to that twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, but but at one point it was twenty thousand, and it keeps increasing. Yeah. So like for say Lindsay and I to make thirty seven thousand, like that, like thirty seven thousand dollars a year, yeah. would be pretty. Like I I don't know it, it might be different now, but like yeah, it is pretty spot on to like yeah being able to I don't know live in in a, not necessarily in a house but like an apartment or something like that. You could at least you'd have a reasonable quality of life. Yeah, exactly. A better one that most than most people in this particular era and who would qualify for that program had. Yeah. So this was like these numbers are not less than one third the average annual family income in the United States at that time. Probably a lot different now. Of course, obviously. So this would also, so they would get like a shit ton of money for the federal government to provide for every single family. Like the, like there's a possibility this could have worked. Obviously never went into. Nothing happened. No, it didn't happen. And it also like reading about this made me think about the Green New Deal that's happening right now. And it's just like, if you think. There's a lot of things that I've been thinking about, like reading through these things where I'm like, man, there's so much pertinent, like. Imagine if Huey Long was around today. I know, but it's it's like you read about... It's also a terrifying thought. But you, you like read about how, like with the Green New... I mean, we can get into this later, sorry. So it also, like the amount of money, this is all that it would guarantee people. So it would guarantee the household family income, like of every household annually. It would also guarantee a pension for every person's over 60. Veterans would receive a pension and full health care benefits. Free education and training would be provided for students to allow equal opportunity in all fields of education from elementary to college. The work week would be limited to 30 hours. That was, those are like the... There Legitimate are, things that are happening now. Yeah, but yeah. and these are all, these are just a, a fraction of what share our wealth is, but these are the most important yeah. bits yeah. of it. It was a really, really big sweeping comprehensive thing. Absolutely. So it was, of course, born out of the Great Depression, and it was Long's way of getting out of the United States out of the Depression, and it was also turning away from, it was about bailing out citizens. Yeah, not the banks. Exactly. You can imagine that conservatives lambasted this plan to the bone. Yeah. They called it all sorts of things, socialism, communism. The former governor and long critic, Ruffin G. Pleasant. Best name ever. I know. Uh, Is it Ruffin or Ruffin? I don't know. I'll call him Ruffin. Ruffin <laughs> G. Pleasant, labeled long as an ultra-socialist. I'm having a hard time reading Ruffin as Puffin. Yeah, okay. But uh, he uh, he said law, his views exceeded those of Marx, Lenin, and Trotsky. The, a New York American publication claimed... Quote, Senator Huey P. Long's Soak the Rich and Spread the Wealth Doctrine is molded in the criminal brains of the leaders of the Paris Commune and sanctified in the brains of Oriental fanatic Nikolai Lenin. And yeah, I double-checked. He said Nikolai Lenin. Yeah. yeah. However, Super Lo- credible. Yeah. I, 
Definitely legit. (laughs) (laughs) But what's funny is like him being labeled communist and ultra socialist and whatnot is what? Well, no, it's not his response. It's some of his like probably even the bigger critics of Long's Share Our Wealth program were communists and socialists. Like, yeah, the Marxist groups, the Leninist groups, revolutionary socialist groups, they said it didn't go far enough Mm -hmm. and it's kept the capitalist system in place. Mm -hmm. So it was not ideal. But what's funny is this this is from like the the higher ups in the communist and socialist uh, movements in the state. Whereas, I mean, when you're going into economic downturns and whatnot communists and like the far left and the far right tend to grow in popularity mm-hmm. same in the united states it was not free from that but I think it happens everywhere yeah long long the program actually managed to sway supporters of communism and socialism to accept that because they saw it as more beneficial because it did not require a violent revolution to implement his Long's response, though, to his, like, the communist charges, I don't know, I have this great quote that I don't know if you have one or not. I don't. Okay, so, he was asked whether his plan was communist, and Long replied, Communism? Hell no. This plan is the only defense this country's got against communism. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what's... And it's it. like, that is a, yep. Long was... A, yes. <laughs> yeah, Long was absolutely terrified that communism was going to take over in the United yeah. States, and he saw this as, he firmly believed this was the only way to prevent... Communism. He was wrong in that sense. I mean, I, obviously it wasn't, but like, yeah, it, it it it's not far fetched to think that something like that, if it really was a real threat, or so, that it it, it would have worked. Because yeah, all of a sudden your people are no longer in turmoil. Yeah, and susceptible. This was his like like the share wealth program was his main platform of when he was going attempting or hoping to get to the top. Yeah, long had presidential ambitions. Pretty much from the beginning. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, I mean, it's not at all obvious in the way he acted or anything. <laughs> so he once confided to his wife when he was still a traveling salesman um, that his planned career trajectory was traveling salesman, minor state office, governor, senator, and then president of the United States. So he was pretty clear on where he wanted to go, which I respect. You know, you got to have goals. I mean, if a man can go from reality TV star to president, it's not so far-fetched. Right? Um, that's depressing. Anyway, uh, Huey Long at least had real credentials. So Huey Long did write a book, his first book, with autobiography. It was called Every Man a King. Surprise, surprise. In his second book, it was published posthumously, but in his second book, he outlined his plans for the presidency. And the book was called My First Days in the White House. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, it was basically laying out his plans for the presidency after the election in 1936. Long biographers, T. Harry Williams and William Ivy Hare, were the two most like prominent Long biographers, and they both speculated that Long planned to challenge FDR for the Democratic nod in 1936, knowing he would lose, but gain valuable publicity in the process, and then break and form an independent third party, and break and form an independent third party, the Share Our Wealth Party. But some historians, actually including Hare, William, or yeah, including Williams, he kind of flip-flopped, um... <laughs> Also, we're spec- or speculated that uh, Long had never, in fact, intended to run for the presidency in 1936, but was plotting with an ally, Father Charles Coughlin, to run someone else as a third party on a third party ticket. So the idea was that this candidate would split the vote with FDR, thereby electing a Republican and proving the electoral appeal of the party. Long would then run in 1940. The Democrats were worried enough 
that the DNC commissioned a secret poll in 1935 uh, from Commissioner or the head of the DNC, Far, uh, Farley. He uh, commissioned a secret poll to see if, quote, Huey's sales talks for his Share the Wealth program were attracting many customers. We kept a careful eye on what Huey and his political allies were attempting to do. The poll determined that if Huey ran on, on a third-party ticket, he would win about 4 million votes, which is about 10% of the electorate. Farley said in a memo to FDR that, quote, It is easy to concede or conceive of a situation whereby long polling more than 30,000 votes would have the balance of power in the 1936 election. So FDR wrote his friend and American ambassador to Germany, William Dodd, that, quote, long plans to be a candidate of the Hitler type for the presidency in 1936. Yeah, so FDR was not, not wild about long and definitely thought he was a, he was a, a threat. Yeah, so he said that uh, long plans to be the candidate of a Hitler type presidency in 1936. He thinks he will have 100 votes at the Democratic Convention. Then he will set up as an independent with Southern and Midwestern progressives. Thus, he hopes to defeat the Democratic Party and put in a reactionary Republican. That would bring the country to such a state by 1940 that Long thinks he would be made dictator. There are, in fact, some Southerners looking that way and some progressives drifting that way. Thus, it is an ominous situation. However, Long would never get the chance to run for president. Because, unfortunately, on September 8th, 1935, while Long was at the Louisiana State Capitol attempting to do as Long does, which is oust a longtime opponent, <laughs> he's trying to oust Judge Benjamin Henry Pavey. From, part, er, from power. And at 9.20 p.m., the bill removing Pavey was passed. Pavey's son-in-law, Carl Weiss, was a Baton Rouge physician and approached Long after the bill was passed. And according to the generally accepted version of events, Weiss shot Long in the torso from a distance of four feet or 1.2 meters. Long's body bodyguards, who clearly didn't protect him the first time, um, <laughs> returned fire and killed Weiss. His autopsy showed he was shot more than 60 times. So, Yeah. They sprayed him. Long died from his wounds on September 10th, 1935 at 4.10 a.m. His last words were either, depending on sources, I wonder what will happen to my poor university boys, or I have so much to do. The sources vary, but both are commonly accepted as potentially his last words. Uh, but there is actually some controversy about whether he might have survived if he had received better surgical care. So kind of the irony of him dying in Louisiana is that while he had done so much for this, the state and getting it, you know, better medical care and better everything, it probably still wasn't nearly as good as other places. And so there's a reasonable chance that, like, he could have survived if yeah. he had been somewhere else. Uh, it's hard to know, though, because stomach wounds in particular are pretty nasty. Well, did you, did you happen to find... The 30s. Yeah, did you happen to find while you're researching the fact that there's a potential that the fatal gunshot wound was from his retaliating bodyguards. Yeah, it, you know, ricochets, things like that. Yeah. Regardless, he died. Long was dressed in a tuxedo and lay in an open double casket of bronze with a glass lid in the state capital rotunda, uh, the new state capital. And he was buried on the new state capital grounds on September 12th. 200,000 people entered Baton Rouge for his funeral with tens of thousands of viewing, or with tens of thousands of viewing in front of the state capital. And then the statue at his grave depicts his achievements, and within the Capitol, a plaque marks the site of his assassination. He also has a statue in the Statue Hall of the U.S. Capitol. So he was acknowledged as also a federal politician, because he was. So he was a very well-attended funeral. He was loved by the people of Louisiana. And uh, 
a lot of people in the United States, and he he died really before the depression started to get better. So I think that um, I I'm gonna choose to go with the story that his last words were "I have so much to do," because it just seems really consistent with Huey Long, because he uh, he just like I get this vibe that he just had relentless energy, like for doing the things that he liked to do, and the things that he liked to do were a lot of whiskey drinking, but also helping people. So, you know. <laughs> or if you listen to him reading the Bible. Uh, yep. Yeah, that's also <laughs> apparently a thing. Reading the Bible, drinking whiskey, helping people. Boom. Huey Long. <laughs> that's, that's... Oh, also pressuring opponents, as I remember. Yeah, that, that's the man. That's, that's who he was. I don't know. I think uh, Long, like, his, his legacy is interesting. It is very interesting. I'm just going to briefly go through... The, the bad stuff and then the good stuff. There's some stuff in here that we didn't talk about just because it was it would have made it made this episode drawn for so long. But for so his cons were he reduced powers of local government, threatened to limit freedom of the press over disputes with critical articles. He accu- he was accused of committing bribery, carrying a concealed weapon, and using bodyguards as quote unquote heavies. Which, I mean, it's not necessarily confirmed, but knowing what Huey was like... Seems unsurprising. It, doesn't, it wouldn't surprise me if they were true. I don't know about the concealed weapons, because like one of the main things that I... I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But, uh, I mean, the war chest is kind of hard to defend. Yep. Despite what he like, some of the stuff he did, like a lot of the stuff he did use it for, he definitely used it for personal gain, like personal uses as well, which to me is just really not fair. I'm sure to everyone listening, it's not fair as well. Yeah, and if you think it's fair, why you might need to reevaluate yeah. that? Yeah, <laughs> and also the road workers who worked tirelessly to get all those roads built during Long's reign, I guess I should say. They were underpaid for their long and hard work. You gotta imagine these were years in the making, and then to be underpaid when you're done. Yeah, it's, it's really shitty. Happens a lot. Oh yeah. So the well, it's really shitty that Long like wanted to get this done, and then he just underpays the workers yeah. that are doing what you are hoping to do. Like, goddamn it. Yeah. I mean, I, li- I like you, Huey, in a way, but goddamn. Were they state employees? Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, they're contracted by the state to yeah. work, so they do get, so they technically are state employees. So they're paid by the state, not yes. the company that was contracted. Y- yes, exactly. So, but here are the pros, and in a, in a way, they kind of outweigh the, the cons. Yeah. It, it's, it, again, like we said, Huey Long is really conflicting to us because we kind of like him, but we don't know if we would support him if he were alive today. It's weird. So I do genuinely believe he was sincere in his care for the people of Louisiana, especially the poor. He had over 600 new roads built throughout Louisiana, which better connected the state and actually helped for these poorer parishes to gain some more wealth. Mm Mm-hmm. He fought off business interests, gripping hold on the media. So media became more unbiased. I mean, it'll never be, media will never be completely unbiased, but it became more 
He was staunchly anti-war, like ironically, probably I, I say militantly anti-war, which is why it, I doubt that he wore he he had a concealed weapon on him. He improved the literacy rate of the state, particularly amongst the black population. He eliminated the poll tax, as Lindsay stated earlier, so more people were able to vote. He successfully taxed Standard Oil and was the first person to ever implement a tax on Standard Oil. Pretty sure it was the tax that I mentioned. That he yeah, it was, it was, yeah. Still. <laughs> and he provided work scholarships to students improving out-of-school employment. So in terms of, like, his long-term legacy, it's kind of... It's complicated. I mean, ultimately, I think all... I mean, legacies are hard to talk about because they're inherently complicated. I mean, Huey just is obviously very complicated comparatively to some, but... Unfortunately, it's hard to say, like, what his legacy would be because... Or what it is, because he never got around to, like, share the wealth, never really... Yeah, so, I mean, to be fair, I think he died long before he could actually achieve most of what he wanted to achieve. Especially because things like share the wealth, or share our wealth. Why don't you call it share the wealth? Um, it doesn't really matter. Anyway. Uh, things like that need to be implemented from a federal level. I mean, you couldn't really, and because a state like Louisiana especially doesn't have the funding to do it. No. So, and I, and I think that Long ultimately cared more than just about Louisiana specifically. Obviously, that's where his heart was, but... And where he, like, fought the hardest. But because he wanted this to be federal, like, that mattered. So uh, an American this American uh, political science scientist, I found a good quote. He concluded that Long kept faith with his people and they with him. He gave them something and the, and the corporations paid for it. He is not to be dismissed as a mere rabble-rouser or, or as a leader of a gang of boodlers. He brought his career to a streak of genius, yet in his programs and tactics, he was as indigenous to Louisiana as pine trees and petroleum. Um, he also added that the Long organization used patronage in all its forms, deprivation of perquisites, economic pressure, political coercion in one form or another, and now and then outright thuggery. <laughs> Long commanded the intense loyalties of, substantial, of a substantial proportion of the population. Supporters came to believe that he was a man with a genuine concern for their welfare, not one of the gentlemanly do-nothing governors who had ruled the state for many decades. I think that kind of, like, really captures. Yeah. Did a lot of good. Also was a thug. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. Like he did. I, I mean, it's it's easy to for for his opponents to compare him to like Hitler and Mussolini, which they did relentlessly. Yeah. Um, but, his, his nickname at one point was Dare Kingfish. Yeah. Not the Kingfish. Uh, but it, like for me personally, it's I'm like, of course you're you're picking an easy, like the easy comparisons. But to call him to compare him to Hitler and Mussolini is just plain wrong because, yeah, yeah Long was authoritarian, but he sh certainly wasn't fascist. No, I also he also wasn't communist either, and I don't know that he actually. I like I have a weird, just feeling that on some level, like I don't know that he. I don't know if he would have wanted to be a dictator. Like, I think he probably did on some level because he acted like it. But on another level, like, I don't know, because he was clearly OK with going to the polls and being elected. And he didn't seem to have to coerce anyone to vote for him. It was easy. I mean, he had to coerce other politicians to vote for him, but yeah. not the people. Again, like it's like going back when we said like like we were talking about it earlier. It's like I don't like I definitely don't believe he was going to dismantle democracy i think no. what he was going to do is he was going to use like use these tactics while he was in power and whatnot in order to because for a long time 
this was the only like he felt that this was the only way to get the elite to do what he wanted. And I like really don't think that we've done like I don't think we can adequate ad- adequately like underscore just how poor the South was and just how poor people were during the depression. Like uh, I remember reading this thing where one woman took her glasses off to eat meat because she didn't want to see what was like crawling in it because it was rotting. Uh, And that was common. So I think that it's like that context is so important. And like, I didn't really want to spend a ton of time talking about the depression because obviously that's like multiple episodes on their own, but that context matters so much because it just explains so much of why what he, we wanted to do mattered. And I think that the depression probably like, I mean, he obviously had ambitions of federal politics before that, but I do think that the depression probably spurred that. Like, I don't think he would have run for Senator as early as he did if things didn't go badly because they went badly and they went really badly in Louisiana. (laughs) Like the South, the South was poor already. And then it got even poorer when the depression hit. Like it was almost so hard to notice how much worse it got because it was already bad. And so I think that I don't, again, I don't know. I'm speculating, but it wouldn't, be shocking to me if it was determined that the depression did spur his like a, a quicker step into federal politics because he realized that like well i can do only so much for the people of louisiana but like everybody else needs help too big companies aren't just invested here they're everywhere louisiana was just a good example yeah and he was from there um, i mean so I, and he was the, and he's proud of that the depression hit like even the richest of states yeah so like new york well, was mean, hit really hard yeah um i'm assuming new york was the richest state at that time it probably was correct me if i'm wrong but like louisiana it was one of if not the most like the poorest state in the union at that time if it wasn't mississippi wasn't it still is yeah so to think like and then huey was like okay so there are people here who are like like they have they there's like maggots crawling on their food if they even have food but that yet there are people in Baton Rouge and New Orleans who are so filthy freaking rich. Mostly New Orleans. All the money was really concentrated in New Orleans. Yeah. It was like there are people who are so filthy Stays. rich that are throwing like these extravagant parties or getting benefit, giving benefits and getting benefits from these rich companies that exploit people. Don't use our oil. Yeah. Like, it, I mean... What's kind of interesting, actually, I just sort of noticed this, specifically a number. So, as my, he underpaid the highway workers, so that's a problem. But all of his infrastructure projects, like, provided a ton of jobs during the Great Depression. And actually, 22,000 of the nation's highway workers were employed by him. That's 10%. That's a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> and also, it can definitely be argued that um, everybody who worked under the National Recovery Act were also underpaid and who worked for every federal program were underpaid. That's, that's true, yeah. Um, there's examples of that. Yeah. So not to sound like I'm a, a Huey Long apologist necessarily, but also he wasn't the only person to do that. Right. That was pretty common. Um, Everything bad that Huey Long did. He yeah. also wasn't the first to do it. Well, he wasn't the first to do it, but we're also not excusing like what he did. No. I mean, we may personally kind of like... We we kept saying we kept saying to ourselves when we were talking while researching we we're like he's a, such a badass. Yeah, like he's kind of one of those. He's definitely the epitome of an antihero because he just you you want to dislike him because he was boorish and awful in a lot of ways. But it's really hard to dislike him wholly because he also was 
it, it kind of like we were talking before we started recording. Um, to me, it comes down to this whole idea of like intentions, right? I mean, the old the old phrase that the road to hell was paved with paved with good intentions. That kind of is like pretty much Huey Long for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, um, especially the whole road thing that's just particularly symbolic for him. But like, he uh, definitely, I think, always acted with the best intention. Not always. Um, when it came to policy, he always acted with the people in his mind. When it came to other other things he did, I don't think the best intentions were necessarily there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can't, like, threaten people with good intentions, but I guess they're good to you. But, yeah, I just, it's like, I don't know, his, 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 uh, his legacy is so complicated by that, because for every bad thing he did, he did it for a good means, and it's like, or a good end, I guess. So, he used a lot of people as means to his end. And there's just larger ethical conversations to be had about how he acted, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's such a complicated thing to grapple with. And it's like, I can't help but like him. But I'm also like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, but it's <laughs> not good. Either. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's, it's it would be hard. Like, I'm sure I would like respect the man if he were alive today or whatnot. But I just like, yeah, I don't think I'd vote for you. But at the same time, the people that we did vote for have also strong armed people. Exactly. So yeah. like. See also the current Canadian scandal rocking politics here. It's like people that we voted for have been part of strong arming people. So like I can't even say that I wouldn't vote for him because it's hard to say because I already have in a, in a way. It's also like one thing I was thinking of is like trying to compare him to certain people today. I mean Bernie Sanders nowhere near like what Huey Long I was like. I don't think that Long would have liked Bernie Sanders. I don't think he would have either. They think, would have hated each other. I think they would not have been friends. Like if you ask Bernie Sanders like his opinion on Huey Long, I doubt he'd have anything really nice to say. I don't know. If anything at all. No, I want to go try and find Bernie Sanders and ask him this question. Yeah, really. But it's like, honestly, in terms of like... Somebody Paul, send this podcast episode to Bernie and tell please, him that we want to hear back. Please. Um... But it's like, like that, though, like in terms of like how people would understand, he was the only person I can think of. Yeah. I mean, the only other person I can think of is maybe Noam Chomsky, but even Chomsky, I don't think would, is as, uh, ver- like verbally, like, uh, Noam Chomsky, like to me, whenever I see him and like talking and whatnot, he's very soft spoken. And even compared to like Bernie Sanders, even though their views are somewhat similar. It's actually really funny to me, like, and I want to look into this more just actually on my own time because I'm curious. I guess all of this is not on my own time. But anyway, um, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Um, I want to look actually more into this like comparison, but like the kind of like a, a comparison of him and FDR because they're actually not like that different in some ways. And I think on some level, actually, I almost respect Long more. And that's like a really blasphemous thing to say. And it's not to say that I don't like FDR because I think he was probably the the best president. But... Like, I think that Huey Long had these ideas long before FDR did. And also because of Long's background, they seem a lot more, like, in hindsight, obviously history is hindsight and hindsight's twenty twenty. but I think that Long felt this way so much longer than FDR did because FDR had a very, very privileged upbringing. He was, like, the epitome of Democrat elite. And, I mean, to his credit, he obviously did a lot of good things and hired people who were smarter than him to help him, hence the brain trust. But I do kind of think that like, if you're going to talk about, say, authenticity, I think Long is possibly one of the most authentic politicians ever, because he really didn't waver, like in his support, he didn't flip flop a lot. He was pretty confident in his like, I will vote for you when I agree with you. And I will vote for you when I, I will vote against you when I don't. 
and I will go after you if I disagree with you, even if I helped get you elected last year <laughs> or you yeah. helped me get elected. Because, I mean, he he the fact that he fell out with so many people that he used to get elected, it's like not respectable. But on the other hand, it's like he was unwilling to compromise, too. Yeah. And he was he was just authentic to his cause. I hate using that word as a philosopher, but <laughs> uh, but he was, I think. And I, I do think that FDR was authentic, too. I just think that knowing as much as I do about him, that there's a lot more not these intentions. <laughs> he was more like old school progressive, not actual progressive in a way. Like he became that way. But like progressives haven't always been people you want to cheer for because progressives like Teddy Roosevelt, for instance, were also very into like the temperance movement and a bunch of things that had really negative impacts. And the progressives haven't been known for always having great attitudes towards racial issues either. So that's something to keep in mind, I guess, too, um, yeah. when we talk about like long challenging progressives, because he did. He also challenged other progressives to be like more progressive, kind of like Bernie. Actually. To be actually progressive, really. Yeah, like to actually be progressive and like, nope, poor people need help. Yeah, <laughs> like, you can't just ignore. Let's not just let's not focus on them as long as like focus on them for more than just trying to take their booze away. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. Focus, focus on them for more than just moral reasons. Focus on them for like moral reasons to yourself. Like don't focus on their morality, focus on your morality and freaking help them. Exactly. Um, it's a lot of the stuff like it's, I mean, we keep like whenever we do something political, we see something. There's always parallels. Yeah. There's always going to be parallels like that. And we kind of see this today. Um, just quickly going back when we were comparing, kind of making somewhat of a comparison between Huey Long and Lord Dampnut. Uh, (laughs) I, We've said his actual name way too many fucking times. I know. I like, I like calling him uh, Agent Orange. Agent Orange. Uh, anyway, Lord Dampnut. Like, yeah, they, they're kind of methods in, like, like in certain ways, their methods are the same in terms of, like, when they're speaking. There's definitely... Being shady. Being shady and whatnot. But, I mean, the, the, dif- the main but difference... But again, Long could actually string sentences together that were coherent. Yeah, and the main <laughs> difference... Like, one of the main differences to me, other than, like, political ideology aside, mm-hmm. Long spoke from the heart. Yeah, I think Long genuinely cared about the people he talked about. 45 does not. No. <laughs> like, the thing is, is that we're finding out that Drumpf... Also to the surprise of no one, by Yeah, the way. is not... Wasn't actually a populist, and he's actually an elitist, no matter what he fucking says. <gasps> But we can go on Shocked. about him. We can go on about him all fucking day and just. Let's not. So let's not. But yeah, so this that's kind of how we are with uh, Huey Long. He's a, he was. I'm sure you're all understanding why we wanted to do him. Yeah. And um, it's just fascinating. The parallels are insane. The like just who he was. One last interesting thing mm-hmm. that I have like just a thought. So. I kind of appreciate his focus on infrastructure. (laughs) And the reason I do is because it's one of those things that it's like obviously important. People need infrastructure, but it's uh, like, it's not a sexy thing to talk about, (laughs) right? Like talking about roads and bridges isn't as sexy as talking about like education and healthcare and water and blah, blah, blah. Um, And (laughs) I have like, so I was uh, watching, I'm a big fan of the West Wing. I've watched it like a bunch of times. And there's this episode, and there's going to be spoilers here. If you haven't seen the West Wing, it's been out for like over a decade. Just fucking watch it. I don't care about spoilers anymore. But anyway, so there's a character at the end, you know, the president's leaving and all the staff are looking for their next opportunities. And 
she's approached, this one character is approached by an NGO who wants to give her like a shitload of money to do something good in Africa. And they want her opinion on what's the best way we can use this shitload of money. And she said that it's not sexy, but the best way to do this is with infrastructure. It's one thing, it's all great and fine to want to build wells for people and give medicine to people, but it's not really helpful if you can't get it there. And so roads aren't sexy, but roads are important. And that just like has always actually stuck in my mind. That's probably like the one, that's one of the weird, weirdly, it's one of the things from the West Wing, the West thing that's like West Wing that has stuck with me the most, especially when we're talking about things like aid and um, humanitarian efforts. But you could also call what was done during the Great Depression and especially what like Long did as a humanitarian effort in a way. I mean, the people of Louisiana did not live in a good situation. And he kind of, yeah, proved that like, Roads matter. You can't get people anything unless there's roads. You can't get people plumbing unless there's a road to those people. You can't do anything without roads and bridges and access to the places that people need to be. So, like, you can't charge a million dollars to cross a bridge because then you're isolating your whole population. You can't only have three bridges in a state that's mostly water (laughs) and expect things to run smoothly. So, um, yeah, that's just, like, a random thought that I kind of just noticed. It's like, and I mean, to be fair... Most of the New Deal was about doing infrastructure. I mean, like, the federal, like, so much infrastructure that exists still was built during the Depression, like, post offices, airports, dams, etc. But just the fact that, like, that's literally all Huey focused on. Because, <laughs> like, FDR obviously had other priorities, like Hitler. Um, whereas Long was not at all concerned with foreign policy, except for one minor spat ab- about Paraguay and Bolivia. But um, he was... Uh, critical of the U.S.'s policy in South America, which actually led to destabilizing some... It was actually had some serious impact, but for the most part, he was really not concerned with foreign policy, and so things like infrastructure were like, this really matters, and I kind of appreciate that. So, road I, rant I think, over. Yeah, I think that's a good place to call it. Like, Huey Long, definitely most conflicting man we've covered so far. Yeah. I mean, Lougheed was pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if we really wanted to dig super, even deeper than we did, we could have, you know, found more bad things, but... Pretty much. Why do that? Yeah. Uh, so, anyway. What, what, uh, what good piece of news did you learn this well, week? Well, this is, this, this, uh, it's very, it's minor, but it really warmed my heart. Do you remember the whole thing with uh, Bat Kid in San Francisco, where they turned San Francisco into Gotham City for a day? Vaguely. For a kid's Make-A-Withs Foundation. Yep. Well, for those of you who don't know, uh, this little boy, I cannot remember his name. He had cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation put together. He wanted to be Batman for a day. So Make-A-Wish Foundation put this together. There's this millionaire that he dre- he dresses up as Batman and visits kids in the hospital. He portrayed Batman. This kid was... Bat Kid for the day. They went all through the city. They turned all of San Francisco into Gotham City, pretty much. The police chief called Bat Kid himself to help. There, the local news was in on it. They were like legitimately doing it as if it was legit news. Like Bat Kid just stopped the Riddler at the bank. They did, and so he stopped a bunch of these criminals, including like the Riddler, Joker, etc., etc., played by these actors. So he got to be back kid for a, a, uh, a day. Yep. Well, after that kind of happened, like people were talking about it for a, a long time, I remember. And then like recently, this was like five years ago. Yeah. And then people like 
kind of like we're thinking, whatever happened to that kid? Like, like he, the poor kid had cancer. Like, what happened? Well, the news I was able to find is he has been in remission for the past five years and has been cancer-free since then. That's exciting. It is very exciting to hear that he's doing well. So he's uh, he's got to be like 10 years old now, I think. Yeah. I can't remember how old he was when it happened, but yeah. So that's my good news is that the kid is doing absolutely fine. Awesome. He's in remission. I mean, he's not definitely not out of the woods fully, yeah. but he's apparently super healthy, super happy. And for me, that was just a big heartwarming thing I needed to hear. Yeah. Just like a few things. Well, first of all, shout out to Egg Boy. (laughs) 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 Um, One of the best pieces of news I read. Um, It's still sort of being corroborated, but uh, the New York Times Daily podcast just was about, they were talking about him on the tail end of the one I was just listening to. So I'm going to choose to believe this is legit. Egg Boy, so people who don't know, so Egg Boy was a, he's a 17-year-old teenager. I can't remember his, his name is actually, uh, Will Connolly is his name. He refers to himself as Egg Boy, and the rest of us have too. Uh, <laughs> and he, well, he became famous now because he ran up to Australian, an Australian politician who blamed the terrorist attacks in New Zealand on immigration, and Egg Boy ran up to him and smashed an egg over his face. So thank you to Egg Boy for smashing eggy justice all over racist heads. But um, he said uh, after, after that, a GoFundMe page was raised to pay for his legal fees. And Connolly said that he reached out to the person who created the page and said that he's committed to sending most of that funding to the victims of the terrorist attacks rather than to his own legal fund. So that was a thing that I was really happy about. And he's actually come out on Twitter and talked about it but the other good news that also just came through today is that the first female ever to win the nobel prize for math just happened oh so congratulations to her those are my two so good news with that in mind like we do um panastoria wishes to give out its sincere condolences to the community of christchurch for the tragedy Mm -hmm. and also you know shout out to the the muslim community here in calgary i think that they've been shown a lot of support and i hope that that continues and i hope that assholes continue to like not be i hope that people continue to fight the assholes who make them feel uncomfortable because yeah. they're a really vibrant part of our community and it's not just the muslim community it's everyone's community exactly they're part of our community when so. when a tragedy at that magnitude happens it affects everybody not just the the, mm-hmm. the victims right yeah, and I think that recognizing that the Muslim community is your community is pretty much the first step in, like, yeah. Absolutely. Know, being a better person. So our sincere condolences to the people of Christchurch. Mm-hmm. We, it was unbelievably horrific hearing about it. But with Shout that said... Shout out to the Prime Minister of New Zealand. Though. Yeah. She's been badass. The good news is that New Zealand has one hell of a badass Prime Minister. And <clears throat> it sounds like work is already underway to get things done. Yeah. And also just hearing the community response as a whole, like not just in Christchurch and New Zealand, but around the world has been amazing. So that's as tragic as it was and as sad and angry as it made me, the response has really warmed my heart. And we hope that the people in Christchurch, especially those directly affected by the tragedy, are beginning their process of healing and we hope 
that you find peace eventually and also peace be with the victims, <clears throat> those who have lost their lives and those who are injured. We hope you find peace. So with that said, uh, we're going to be on a bit of a break for a couple weeks. We're still going to be on a bit of a schedule. I don't think our schedule actually gets disrupted at all. Uh, it's about a week. Okay. That that's about it. But um, we just just the next time. Um, the the reason why is because I didn't want to release an episode on Easter. <laughs> so there's just it's just going to be one week off, and that's it. And uh, yeah. So also, uh, um, we have a blog now, which I don't remember. Pretty sure ninety percent sure we mentioned this in the last episode. But either way, we have a blog now. We've posted our first first. Uh, well, the first post. Uh, it was posted on International Women's Day, and it was my own personal list of my favorite 10 women in history, in no particular order. But we're also going to be using this blog to highlight, yeah, cool, smart people. And we're also going to be using it, or at least we're going to try and provide a service. So, for those of you who live here in Alberta, um, and for everyone who doesn't, you can disregard or pay attention anyway. Um, as you should know, the Premier of Alberta, Rachel Notley, has dropped the writ, which means that we have an election called. So the Alberta provincial election will be held on Mar- April 14th. Six, April 16th. Shit, April 16th. No worries. Ignore me. Uh, <laughs> but don't. Um, and we're going to be putting up a post sometime in this period here, in the next week or so. We're gonna. Our goal is to release blog posts on opposite, opposite days of podcast episodes. So keep your eyes peeled, because we're going to be posting a comprehensive list of parties that are running, their platforms, what they believe in, uh, who the candidates are in various writings, uh, and just other helpful resources. We obviously have political beliefs, but we're going to do our very, 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 very best to just keep this post as like objective and like informational as po- purely informational as possible, yeah. no uh, no rhetoric or anything. None of we our- just want to make like a, it's almost like a, a one-stop shop for just learning about the election and each party's platform. Yeah. None of our political views are going to be in this post. Yeah. I mean, I promise. We do our best to hide it. It's hard to hide entirely, but we're going to do our very best to make it as like objective as humanly possible. It's right. really just meant to be pure information. Like this is where you look if you're interested in this. Yeah. This is where you look if you're interested in this. Also, we're not endorsing like, Panastoria will will never be used as a political pa- platform. We know we talk about politics a lot. I know we do, but we will never endorse no. a political party or candidate and we will never well, also because we don't even agree on candidates yeah <laughs> like, we will never accept endorsements from a political party or candidate we want to make this to complete we have our personal views and we are i we're like we're going to be free to express our political views on this place but understand that we're not endorsing anybody this post will be completely nonpartisan, and it'll just be about the facts based on what's on their respective websites. Yeah, because we do believe in voting and democracy, so use it. And But seriously, um, someone please send this to Bernie Sanders and ask how he feels about who <laughs> I really want to know. So a guerrilla campaign to get an answer from Bernie Sanders would be dope. Um, Panastoriapodcast at gmail.com, Bernie. Yeah. You can send us. Yeah, that would be sweet. So please, somebody send this to him. That'd be cool. We have American followers. Brian. Brian. (laughs) Buddy, help us out. Um, Guerrilla campaign. We're getting Bernie to answer a question. Um, Again, not endorsing a candidate here. I just want his answer. (laughs) (laughs) Can't even vote in that election, so whatever. If there's anyone where, if we were to endorse anyone, it it wouldn't be Bernie Sanders. Sorry, Bernie supporters, but no. Still just (laughs) want an answer, though, so. 
Anyway. Yeah, with that. Yeah, we're, we're rambling again, so we're going to call it quits. Next episode, do you want to announce what it is? Sure. So something that I kind of became interested in, in general, and just through some people that I know who did research, uh, shout out Dr. Sarah Hoffman. We are going to do an episode about the history of mind-altering substances. So this includes pretty much all drugs from, like, as tame as coffee to as serious as other narcotics and hallucinogens uh, and alcohol, for instance. And we're just going to it's going to be kind of a loose, like non linear discussion about um, just the rituals and different interesting historical things that have been done and, you know, talked about regarding those types of things like drugs in general. So it'll be a fun, non-traditional type fan historia episode. So uh, it's going to be interesting. So stay tuned. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's going to be a lighter episode, obviously. Um, don't expect any personal experience stories because yeah. I personally don't have any. <laughs> so, um, They're not always ones people want to share either. Exactly, so. <laughs> but I don't have any. And we're going we're gonna to stick to pretty purely historical experience. Pretty much, yeah. So that's going to be on, the I think, the third week of April that's coming out. It's We're trying to get it out the same week as 420. Because reasons. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so expect that. Uh, I think that's everything. So thank you for listening, friends and enemies. Hey, that's my thing. Sorry. It's okay. I thought it was our thing. But anyway, (laughs) thanks thanks so much for listening. It's just my new non-gendered way of talking to people. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Have a good week. Yeah. Goodbye, Joe. Me gotta go. Me oh my me gotta go pull the P-Road down the bio My Yvonne, the sweetest one, me oh my oh Son of a gun, we'll have big fun on the bio